Thanks for tuning in to Next Level Church Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at nextlevelchurch.net. Well, today we're kicking off a brand new series at the movies, Christmas edition. Now, if Next Level is your church and you've been around during the summertime, you know that every summer we do a series called Movies, Modern Day Parables. And it's an annual series that people absolutely love. Uh, but this year, while we were planning like our, our whole sermon calendar throughout the year, our discipleship pastor, Eric, came to me and he said, you know, everyone loves the movie series, but there's one problem with it. Because it's always in July, we're never going to get a feature Christmas movie. Is there ever a chance that we could do this series at Christmas time? And I said, well, yeah, sure, why not? Let's give it, let's give it a shot. So if, this is the first time we've ever done this at Christmas time. If you like it, we may just do it again next year. If it fails, you're never going to see this series again. <laughs> so uh, this is a series where we feature Christmas movies, and they're going to help us make a scriptural point. So we're actually going to watch some clips in the service and then we'll get to the, to the Bible, to the scriptures, and, and, and what the spiritual point of the film. And for the very first film in this series, the movie that we picked is one of my absolute favorites. Today's film came out in 1990, and it was a massive hit. When I say massive, that is an understatement. The film cost $18 million, but it grossed $476.7 million. That's a lot of money. Not only that, the film came out on November 16th, but it was the number one movie in the world for 12 consecutive weeks. That means that it was number one until February of the next year, which is absolutely mind-blowing. Not only that, it stayed in the top ten of all films all the way past Easter of the following year. It was a massive hit, and that means that people were watching a Christmas film after Easter. Now, I don't know if your family watches the same movies every Christmas, but mine does, and this is one of the first ones that we always Watch, I'm talking about none other than the movie Home Alone. Any Home Alone fans? Yeah. Now, in case you haven't seen Home Alone or it's been a while and you just need a refresher on it, the movie is about a family who is taking a vacation to Paris, France, and the house is full of family. You have the mom and the dad and then their kids, but you also have an uncle and aunt and all of their kids, and the house is just packed and it's chaotic. Everyone is running around trying to pack and get ready for the trip, and that sets up our very first scene. Check this out. Do you know what I should pack? Well, it's told you, cheap face. Toilet paper and water. Listen, Kevin, what are you so worried about? You know mom's gonna pack your stuff anyway. You're what the French call les incompetents. What? Bombs away! P.S. You have to sleep on the hide-a-bed with Fuller. If he has something to drink, he's going to wet the bed. This house is so full of people. It makes me sick. When I grow up and get married, I'm living alone. Did you hear me? I'm living alone. I'm living alone. So if you've ever packed for a family vacation, you know how stressful it is. And Kevin is stressed. And my favorite line of that whole scene is he says, when I grow up and get married, I'm living alone. Like, little does he know that when you're married, you're not alone. Well, Kevin is really stressed. And he comes down a little bit late because he's been dealing with things. And the whole family is eating dinner. And you know how it is when you're stressed about something, when things aren't going your way, your emotions are just a little bit higher. And that's what we see happens in this next scene. Check this out. Grab yourself a napkin, and you're going to have to pour your own drinks. Mom, do Santa Claus have to go through customs? What time do you 
Early. We're leaving the house at 8 a.m. on the button. I hope you're all drinking milk. I want to get rid of it. Hey, the pizza boy needs $122.50 plus tip. For pizza? Ten pizzas times 12 bucks. Frank, you've got the money, don't you? Come on. Traveler's checks. Forget it, Frank. We have cash. You probably get the kind of traveler's checks that don't work in France. Did anyone order me a plain cheese? Oh, yeah, we did. But if you want any, somebody's going to have to barf it all up. Because it's gone. Fuller, go easy on the Pepsi. Get a plate. Jerk. So some drama happens at Christmas time. That's very relatable. Um, if you've ever done anything with family, you know that drama can just happen. It's hard. Not everyone's going to get their way. Uh, not everyone's going to get everything that they want. And it's just easy, especially when there is some stress level because you are planning for a trip. Now, there is something in this scene that even if you've seen the film a bunch of times, you may have missed. When Kevin uh, attacks his older brother, Buzz, knocks him into the milk, it spills over to the passports. But what is also next to the passports is the plane tickets. And what you see is the dad, he starts to clean up the passports, and they're in red napkins. And as he cleans up the napkins, he throws something away. And there's a clip of it right here in the trash can. Uh, in the trash can, you see there is only one plane ticket, and it is Kevin's plane ticket. And that is crucial for understanding how the family could actually go on vacation and not realize that a ticket or a kid was missing. Well, from this point in the film, uh, Kevin is just frustrated with his family, and, and so he declares, uh, he makes a hope, he makes a wish that his family would disappear, and that's literally what he wants, and I think you can relate to that if you've ever had especially family drama or if you've had relational drama. The, the thought is like, yeah, I just want people to disappear. Just leave me alone. I just, I'm better off without you, and so that is Kevin's wish, but what we see is that the very next morning, his family is, is stressed and running late because uh, there's a power outage, the, the, um, the shuttle from the, from the airport comes to pick them up, and so they're all running late, they're all stressed, and a bunch of, of misfortunate events happen, and the family ends up on the airplane flying to Paris, France without Kevin. He didn't actually make his family disappear. But it's at this point in the film that his parents are starting to kind of put some things together. And if you've ever been on a trip, maybe you've had that feeling like, did we forget to do something? I just, I feel like there's something we didn't do. And that sets up this next scene. Check it out. What's the matter? Honey? I have a terrible feeling. About what? That we didn't do something. Ah, now you feel that way because we left in such a hurry. We took care of everything. Believe me, we did. Did I turn off the coffee? No. I did. Did you lock up? Yeah. 
Did you close the garage? That's it. I forgot to close the garage. That's it. No, that's not it. What else could we be forgetting? So uh, two weeks ago, I'm, I'm writing this sermon, and I'm, I'm working on it, and uh, I take a little break to check out social media, and on Instagram, I saw uh, this post that I thought was absolutely hilarious, and it, it's very fitting for today's movie. The most unbelievable part of the Home Alone movies is that Kevin is the youngest child. No way does a mom forget the baby. Now, a middle child, no one remembers the middle child. <laughs> As a middle child, I feel like I can relate I can relate to that. So Kevin legit thinks that he has made his family disappear. His family, though, we know, didn't actually disappear. They have accidentally left Kevin home alone. And at first, Kevin loves the fact that he is alone. He gets to order a cheese pizza and eat it all by himself. He gets to pick whatever he wants to watch on television. He doesn't have to fight with his siblings. He gets to control his schedule, and he actually starts to mature through it. He, he takes on the form of an adult and starts to act like uh, one of his parents would act. And it's uh, some of the best scenes in the movie. Check this out. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas Just like the ones I used to know Where those streets are Listen in the car. Where's your father? He's at work. What about your brothers and your sisters? I'm an only child. Where do you live? Uh, I can't tell you that. Why not? Because you're a stranger. <laughs> I absolutely love that dialogue. It's so genius. 
So the film Home Alone, it, it is really famous for the way that the film ends. And uh, throughout the film, we are introduced to some criminals who are known as the Wet Bandits. And their whole goal is over Christmas vacation, while families are out of town, they're going to break into homes and they're going to steal things and, and no one will be there so they won't, they won't get caught. And uh, they find out that, that, that Kevin is at this home alone. Uh, his house is the house that they want to stake out. It's the house that they want to rob. And through a series of events, they realize that Kevin's there alone. And so they decide that they're going to still break in to the house. And this is where Kevin becomes like a maniacal genius. Like he un unwraps a whole plan of booby traps to take care of, of the criminals. And uh, once, he, once the criminals actually break in, uh, it's some of the, the best humor of the film. In fact, as a kid, these were always my favorite scenes. And I will let you know that there is no way that any human being could survive what Kevin puts them through. This uh, humor is very cartoony and not meant to be taken very seriously. With that being said, check this out. Oh, no, I'm really scared. It's too late for you, kid. We're already in the house. We're going to get you. Okay, come and get me. Who are you? So uh, we got one final scene for today, but before we watch it, uh, there's a side story in Home Alone that ends up being a very sweet side story. If you're familiar with it, you know that Kevin is really afraid of one of his neighbors. But uh, Kevin is starting to feel alone, and he's starting to feel scared, and he actually is starting to wish that his family would come back together. And he's really sad that he's missing his family. And so Kevin goes to church to find some comfort. And in the church, he meets this neighbor. And they end up having a really sweet conversation. And it's really about a restoration and families coming back together. It's a really important and very vital scene to the film. But I tell you that because in this final scene, Kevin thinks that he's gotten away with it. He thinks that he's stopped the bad guys and he's running to a neighbor's house to call the cops. But things don't go as planned. And in this scene, you're going to see his neighbor. Check this out. Follow him. I got a better idea. Come on. Hiya, pal. We outsmarted you this time. Get over here. Hey! <laughs> 
What are you gonna do to him, Harry? I'll do exactly what he did to us. And I'll burn his head with a blowtorch. You can smash his face with an iron. I can slap him right in the face with a paint can, maybe. Or shove a nail through his foot. First thing I'm gonna do is bite off every one of these little fingers, one at a time. <laughs> oh! Oh! Come on, let's get you home. So Home Alone is an absolute classic, and the big takeaway from the film is, it's the big idea, is that we are in desperate need of one another. And you see this all throughout the film. You may have missed it because there's a lot of great dialogue, there's a lot of great humor, there's a lot of great, like, kind of funny action in the film, but the whole point of the movie is that we really are better together. And you see this in Kevin, in his journey, that conflict causes him to push his family away, but in the midst of danger, he requests and desires for his family to come back. We see this in the side story with his neighbor. When he meets his neighbor, at the church, his neighbor lets him know that he hasn't seen his son and talked to his son in years. But there's this beautiful story of restoration of them coming back together. And the entire point of the movie is that conflict causes us to push people away. But in the end, we really are better together. And as great as Kevin is, as great as he is, is creating this plan that, that completely booby traps his house and tries to stop the wet bandits. As great as that plan is, we even see that afterwards he still needed some help. He takes these, these wet bandits through all these booby traps, but then he still gets caught by them. And if it weren't for his neighbor, he wouldn't have got away. And so today we want to look at this because this is something that Scripture echoes like all throughout Scriptures is how desperately we need one another. And today's Scripture that we're going to look at, it comes from a guy by the name of Peter. And Peter is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He wrote a couple books in the New Testament. And uh, Peter is a little bit of a hothead. If, if you're one that struggles with your temper or saying things before you think, you would love Peter. Because he often puts his foot in his mouth. And Peter knows the importance of relationships. And he really knows the importance of reconciliation when relationships have become strained and broken. And with that being said, we want to honor the text today. The way that we do that next level is we stand to our feet. So I want to invite you to stand to your feet and read with me 1 Peter 5, 8. When we get to the reference, 1 Peter 5, 8, we're going to have a little fun. You'll see the reference. There's two dots between the 5 and the 8. And we like to just pump our fists and say dot, dot. And uh, if your heart is not three sizes too small, you'll have fun with us. And you'll pump your fists as well. Will you read it with me nice and loud? It says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 1 Peter 5, dot, dot, 8. Now that we've read the text, let's go to God in prayer. God, we come before you and we just ask that you would speak to our hearts. But even more than that, God, would you give us the courage to obey and do whatever you tell us to do. And God, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, you are my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. So I believe that we all can relate to relational drama. I think we can all relate to the premise of the film, that it's difficult to be in relationship, especially with family, especially during the holidays. I think all of us have had some type of, of, of drama. And what we need to know is that the way that the human brain is wired is that we don't like conflict. We don't like things when they're difficult. And so when relationships becomes difficult, when there's conflict in the relationship, one of the first things that we want to do is push people away. And we say, I don't like this conflict. I don't know how to handle this conflict. I'm better off without the conflict. And like Kevin, we say, I just wish everyone was gone. I want to push everyone away. 
And sometimes, like Kevin, if we really were honest with ourselves, we would see that the reason we're pushing people away is because we're selfish. Kevin didn't get his way, but he didn't handle the situation right. He thought that it was 100% his family's fault. And as long as he was focused on the drama with his family, he didn't really understand the part that he played in the conflict. And Peter has a word for us. Because we all can experience conflict, because we've all dealt with it, Peter addresses this and helps us understand, well, what can we do in the midst of conflict? When there is relational conflict, when there's some issues at hand, what should we do? Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, verse 5. He says, all of you. Now, I want to just stop there real quick. Peter is talking, even though the verse says all of you, he is talking specifically to Christians. If you're not a Christian, this doesn't apply to you. You can still apply what we're going to learn, but you need to know this isn't written to you or about you. And if you're not a Christian, we love that you're here at Next Level. This is a safe place for you to come and to check things out. But if you are a Christian today, you need to know this is written to you, to challenge you and motivate you, that this is your responsibility to respond to what you're about to hear. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. So Peter says to clothe ourselves with humility. And to give a little bit more context, Peter is writing specifically to two groups of men in the early church. There are some younger men and there's some older men. And in order to make sure that they don't have conflict, Peter is telling them to clothe themselves with humility. Because anytime you put two humans together, there's going to be conflict. Anytime you put two people, even Christians together, even family together, there will be conflict. And Peter's answer to that is for each person to clothe themselves with humility. That is to put on humility. Now, why would this change a conflict? Because I don't know about you, but when I'm in the midst of a conflict, I don't think about humility. The reason that this is so incredibly important is because in a conflict, pride says I'm better off by myself. And whenever you are in a conflict, pride will speak up and say, you're not the one to blame, they are. And anytime there's a conflict, pride will make you say, you know what, maybe I should just call this thing off. Maybe I should just push them away. I wish my family would disappear. Anytime there is a conflict, there's this little whisper in you that says, you're just better off. You don't need them. That church hurt you, just push it away. Those people hurt you, just push them away. They don't have your best interests in mind. Just push them away. Anytime there's a conflict, pride comes in. And so humility would say, okay, if pride's telling me to push them away, humility would say, you know what, maybe I'm better with them. Humility would say, maybe I need to own up to some of the part that I played in this conflict. If you're a person here, I want you, and you've had some conflict, I want you to think about just for a second, someone that you've had a, a strained relationship with. Maybe it's family, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a friend, someone that you haven't spoken to in a while, that you've pushed away because of conflict. If you're here today, I want you to know that because you're human, it's natural and it's going to happen. And you may have some really strong feelings about that person. And maybe you are not ready to forgive that person because maybe what they did, it's 99% their fault. And you don't have a way to forgive them in your own. And so you're bitter and you're angry and you don't, know, you don't even know what to do. Can I just tell you, if you're a Christian, the very first thing that you should do whenever there is relational drama, the first response should be to pray for the other person involved. Before you try to figure out how you're going to forgive them, before you figure out whose fault it is, if you are a Christian and you're feeling some bitterness, some, if you're feeling frustration, if you're feeling unforgiveness, I want to challenge you just to start praying for him. Did you know it is next to impossible to pray for someone that you hate? Did you know it's really hard to pray for someone that you're bitter against? So if there's someone in your life and you just can't stand them, go before God. 
We sang a song today. It was the second song that we sang during our, our worship set. And it said that um, I, I'm going to fight my battles on my knees. Why? Because the battle belongs to God. You don't have the strength to forgive this person. You don't have the strength to look over what they did. But God can help you through that. But if you try to fix a relationship on your own, it's just not going to happen because you're too human and I'm too human. The way forward, the first thing that you can do, the first response is just start praying for him. Make a little note. Put a note in your phone as a reminder and just say, okay, every day I'm going to pray for this person. Even if the prayer is as simple as, God, would you help me forgive them? God, would you, would you change their heart? God, would you help them to find you? The first response to relational conflict is to pray for the other person involved. And that's going to take some humility. Because pride will say they don't deserve a prayer. And pride will say, well, they're not praying for me. But humility says, okay, the best thing that could happen to the person that I'm in conflict with is that God captures their heart and our relationship is restored. Well, there's a second thing that I want to point you to, and it's the starting point to relational humility. So the first response is prayer. The starting point, though, to heal the relationship is admitting you're part of the conflict. In every relationship, it takes two people. When you are in a conflict, excuse me, I'm getting choked up thinking about relationships. When you are in a conflict, you will become hyper-focused on the other person. In conflict, we get like microscopes on our eyes, and we start analyzing everything that they did wrong, and we become hyper-focused with what they've done, and we forget about the part that we've played. In the movie Home Alone, Kevin plays a big part of this conflict. Even though his family did a lot of things wrong, he still has to own up to the fact that he played a part in it. And in every conflict, even if the other person is 99% wrong, If you respond poorly to the conflict, you have a part to play in the conflict. Even if if they did everything wrong, if they didn't meet your needs or your expectations, if they've done everything and you're just like, they're the worst person ever. Okay, well, how did you respond to it? What part did you play in the conflict? And if you want to start finding healing like they did in the movie Home Alone, every person involved needs to take responsibility for their part and admit, okay, I played played a part in this. Now... Understanding this relational humility is so incredibly important because of what Peter says next. And the very next thing is our theme verse, and it's connected to relationships. Look at what Peter says, 1 Peter 5.8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, in Home Alone, the enemy of the film are the wet bandits, and they attack Kevin. And the reason that they attack Kevin is because Kevin is home alone. Can I just tell you that the movie would be very different if his family was there? The wet bandits would not have attacked the house if his parents were home. The reason the enemy attacked is because Kevin was home alone. And Peter says that if you're a Christian, there is a spiritual enemy out there that prowls around like a roaring lion. I don't know if you've ever watched like National Geographic or watched like a nature show where a lion attacks to eat, but you ever notice the lion doesn't attack the strongest ones? It always attacks the runt. It attacks the ones that's sick. It attacks the weakest one at the end. And if the rest of the tribe runs away, the lion will get its prey. There is a spiritual enemy out there that knows he cannot defeat you if you are fighting with an army. 
He knows he cannot defeat you if you've got people supporting you and people that have your back. He knows that you are better together. So when there is a relational conflict, the spiritual enemy will start whispering to you, you don't need them. They hurt you. Push them away. Wish them away. Get them away. Why? Because the enemy knows if he can get us alone, he can win. It's his only shot. When a lion seeks his prey, it never goes after the strongest. And I think that this scripture is telling us that when the spiritual enemy, the devil, attacks us, it's not when we're at our strongest. He waits until we're at our most vulnerable. He waits till he can get us alone. In fact, there are some weapons that the devil throws at us, and I think he does this to isolate us. I think a lot of Christians have a misperception of the devil. I think they think he's some big, scary monster like from some horror movie. But I think the devil uses little subtle lies, little things to distract us and to get us alone. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. Here are some weapons that the devil throws at us in order to isolate us. Number one, busyness. This is a key thing that the devil throws at us. We start getting busy and the devil starts saying, yeah, you don't really need church. You're too busy for it. We start getting busy and the devil whispers, yeah, you, you need a little bit more sleep. Don't spend time reading the Bible. We get busy and the devil says, yeah, you don't have time to pray. Why? Because the devil knows that those are our weapons to fight against him. And if he can get us alone, if he can get us isolated, if he can get us away from other Christians, then he has a shot. Number two, hurt. Weapons the devil throws at us to isolate us, hurt. We've already been talking about this. Hurt is one of the things that often isolates us, that when you feel hurt, the natural response is just to push people away. We don't know how to talk about our hurt. We don't know how to deal with the hurt. And so we say, okay, that church hurt me. They didn't give, they didn't give me what I wanted or they didn't meet my needs or, or, or they didn't do what I wanted them to do or that person hurt me. And we push away the very people that could help us. Number three, pride. I think this is why humility is so incredibly important in every relational conflict. Pride tells us not to ask for help. You know that in, in, if, you're, if you're married here, I know not everyone's married, but if you are married here, um, you will go through relational difficulties. You just will. Every human does. It. And you know that when you start to go through relational difficulties, pride speaks up and says, we can fix this on our own. No, no, no. You're in that problem because you're on your own. You can't fix it on your own. The way to fix it is to invite other people in, some trusted people, some good counseling, Christian counseling, someone else to help give you some guidance. But your pride, I'm telling you, whenever there is a conflict, your pride's going to say, I got this. I don't want to let people know I'm struggling. I don't want to let people know that we're fighting. I don't want to let people know that, that I have like real emotions. Pride is a, an enemy of the devil to get you isolated and alone. Number four, boredom. Boredom. This is an interesting one. Did you know that research actually shows why we are tempted to eat late at night while we're watching television? According to science, the reason that we are tempted to eat while we're watching television is not because we're actually hungry, it's because we are bored. The human brain is wired to be stimulated, and television does not stimulate our brains enough. So when we sit down to watch television late at night, our brains start to get bored and it starts to look for something to stimulate it, to wake it up. And it starts to think about food. And then all of a sudden you can't stop thinking about food and you've got to give your brain what it actually wants. Did you know that boredom is one of the tools that the devil uses to isolate us and get us alone? When we are bored, we are often at our most vulnerable and we are tempted the most. 
If you are here today and you would be honest enough to admit that you have some struggles in your life, that there's an ongoing temptation, can I tell you that the reason that you are most likely tempted in that area is because you've been bored. That in boredom, you've needed some excitement and so you've gone to a quick fix. But then that quick fix doesn't lead you to any real life change. It actually leads you to feel shame and to feel bad about yourself. And then that shame is what the enemy uses to separate you from everyone else. And in boredom, you may have chosen something unhealthy, but then the enemy comes along and says, don't you dare tell them what you just did. Don't admit it. You just keep that one to yourself. You keep, you keep that one private. And then we're felt, we feel left alone carrying this guilt and shame on us because the devil wants us isolated number five last one is laziness weapons the devil throws at us to isolate us the last one is laziness laziness is something i don't think he has to work very hard to to hit us with but laziness is just like uh yeah like you're you're tired today you don't need to go to church yeah you 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 had a, a late weekend you don't need to read your bible yeah you you you've had a busy semester you don't need to join a small group Laziness, so often we just think, oh, it's no big deal. These things are optional for us. But the spiritual enemy knows that if he can get us isolated, if he can get us away, he has a foothold. You want to know something fascinating about the spiritual enemy, the devil? The the Bible talks about the devil and he talks about his demons. And you can read some various scriptures about them. And here's something that's really fascinating. There is not one verse in the Bible that shows the demons fighting against each other. And there's not one verse in the Bible that shows the devil fighting with the demons. Every time we see the demons or the devil, they are unified together. Why? Because they know they're better together. And his big scheme is to get us alone. Because he knows that we are better together. And if he can get us alone, then he has a shot of taking us down. He does not stand a chance of taking us down if we are in community together. But if he gets us alone, if he gets us alone in our thoughts... If he gets us alone without support and without accountability, he may just win. And one of the biggest ways that he does this is through relational drama. This is why uh, the Apostle Paul, who's another primetime player in the scripture, he says this in Ephesians 6.12. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Don't miss what Paul just said. Our struggle is not with each other. Our struggle is not with the the, the people that we work with that we can't stand. Our struggle is not with our neighbors who are annoying. Our struggle is not with our own family who we don't really like to be with around Thanksgiving and Christmas. That's not our struggle. Our struggle as Christians is a spiritual battle. But we are so focused on what we can see that we forget about what we can't see. And when we're in relational conflict, all we can think about is how they hurt us, how they let us down, how they didn't meet our expectations. But could it be that behind the scenes, there's a spiritual enemy that's just trying to get you alone and just keeps feeding the fire? Yeah, they did hurt you. Yep, they are to blame. Yeah, they are what's wrong. You don't need them. You don't need them anyway. Now, um, if this talk of a spiritual enemy, I don't know if it scares you or not. I don't know if like you maybe grew up watching horror movies and you hear of the devil and you're like, oh my gosh, that scares me half to death. Um, I want to let you know that your response, if you're a Christian to the devil and to the demons, your response should be exactly like Kevin's response was to the wet bandits. The very first time the wet bandits come to Kevin's house, he pumps a shotgun, it's a BB gun, and he says, uh, this is it, don't get scared now. And that should be your response to a spiritual enemy. 
The scriptures teach us that if you are a Christian, greater is he that is in you. That is, greater is Jesus that is in you than he that is in the world, the spiritual enemy. We don't have to fear the devil. The devil is not some big, scary monster that we cannot defeat. The devil has to ask permission to wipe his nose from Jesus. So if you are sitting here and you're like, I'm scared, I don't know how to handle this spiritual enemy, you need to know that, that the enemy is not something that we need to be afraid. The enemy is something we need to be aware of. Because the enemy doesn't come at us like some big monster. If he did, we'd fight against him. The enemy comes to us with a little whisper. It's behind the scenes. It, it, it's speaking in every relationship, trying to get you alone, trying to get you isolated, trying to get you to believe that you don't need God and you don't need other people. The spiritual enemy is wreaking havoc in our lives. And he's going to do that by thinking that you're just better off alone. It's what Kevin thought. It's what so many of us think so often in our relationships. But I want to circle back to something just for a second. And the reason I want to circle back to it is because I think it's really important in the context of what we're talking about today. This verse that Peter wrote about uh, the lion and being uh, humble, it was really written to the group of men that were in the church. And I think both men and women play a very important part in the church. I think we need both men and women. I think, I, I think we need amazing, godly women. But just for a second, I want to speak to the men. Because anytime there is a war, the war is won because men stand up and fight against the battle. And in the spiritual world and in the church world, there are way too many men who are asleep at the battlefield. And there are way too many men who are letting their, their wives take the spiritual lead and who are so scared to do anything spiritually. Can I just tell you just for a second, the best thing that you could do is to remember that you are in a battle. And the battle's not against other people. It's not against uh, yourself. The greatest battle in this world is fighting a spiritual battle. And God is wanting you to lead and to get on the forefront and to do something about it. I like the quote by author uh, John um, Eldridge, he says, deep in his heart, every man longs for a battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. I think that every man is longing for a battle to fight. I think the problem is, is that we forget that our fight is not against one another. Your fight is not against your spouse. If you want to inspire your spouse, can I just tell you the best thing you can do is live for Jesus and watch what happens. Can I just tell you, if you're a parent, your kids are in a spiritual battle. And we spend so much time focused on making sure they have the best education and the best friends and the best activities. But if you're a parent, you need to understand that your kids are on the front lines of a spiritual battle with a spiritual enemy that wants to destroy them. And the best thing you can do for your kids is to model for them what it looks like to live for Jesus. And to prioritize what it means to live for Jesus. And to make sure that church and God is a big part of your life. But also to make sure that they understand that they are only going to go as far as their community. And they need good Christian community. Because we cannot win this thing on our own. So if you're here today and, um, and you did take any notes, I just want to remind you that there's two pieces of application. This Christmas season, someone's going to offend you. Someone's going to do something wrong. There's going to be some type of relational drama. And when that happens, the very first thing that I want to challenge you to do is to pray for those who offended you. Just start praying for them. Just ask God, God, would you do something in their life? Would you help fix this? I can't fix it on my own. Start praying for them. But the second thing is admit that you're part of the conflict. 
In every single conflict, it takes two people. And if you want to find healing, you've got to own your part. Even if it's only 1%, you've got to own your part. But ultimately, what we need to remember is that at the heart of every conflict is a spiritual enemy that understands that we are only going to fall if we're alone. Why? Because we're better together. We pray with me? God, we thank you so much for this day. And thank you that uh, you're a God that doesn't leave us alone. God, we just ask that you would give us the strength to do what we cannot do on our own. When there's relational conflict, we want to push people away. But God, we so desperately need each other. So I'm asking right now in Jesus' name that you would start the healing process. That for some of us that have bitterness and anger and frustration and hurt relationally, God, I ask that you would start the healing process. That you would start the restoration. For God, those of us who have been hurt by church, I ask that you would start the healing process and to help us know that people hurt us, but you didn't hurt us. And I ask God you'd help us to forgive as you have forgiven us. We ask in Jesus' name that you'd help us to have healthy and strong relationships because we are truly better together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon. If you would like to hear more, please visit our website at nextlevelchurch.net. You can also follow us on social media at Next Level 757. Join us next time.